This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. If you would, turn to Matthew 16. And let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to You, Lord, um, that we have in You the ultimate friend. And Lord, that we are able to bring all of our cares before You and find that You care for us and that You bear our our burdens. Lord, um, we thank You for bringing us here this evening. We ask that You open up Your Word to us, enable us to understand what we read here and glean from it uh, what You would have us to take from it. Lord, may, uh, may our religious life be real, not, uh, not something phony or simply for show like we see illustrated so often uh, in the Pharisees and the Scriptures. But Lord, may we truly have hearts for You and for Your purpose and for Your will, for Your glory. And Lord, we know that uh, all of these things are just by Your grace. And Lord, we, thank, we are thankful uh, to You for bringing us to Yourself, for making Yourself known to us. We're thankful to You for giving us all the blessings that You've bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we're thankful that though we have nothing bring to You. Lord, You've made us accepted in the Beloved, in Christ. Thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just out of a little bit of curiosity here, and it's not totally... Um, well, that's a little bit to do with what we're talking about tonight. Somebody just asked, uh, or Brother Freddie just asked a few minutes ago, just, we were just kind of joking around, and he asked if it was appropriate to talk about politics in the church. And it made me think, um, I'm going to turn this around a little bit though, is it appropriate to talk about church and politics? And it, it made me think about this question, that uh, that question uh, coming up in, in some of the... Uh, uh, campaigns that we see, especially the presidential campaign. That's really where most of that uh, goes on. Um, do you think that a person's um, faith, that's usually the way, the, the way it's, the question is termed, um, do you think that a person's faith Makes a difference in, in 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 their serving in public capacity. Like if if they serve as president, does that make a difference? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It it definitely makes a difference. And and I don't say that because um, I understand that that there are times that we have choices that that. Um, Maybe there's there doesn't even involve, perhaps sometimes maybe doesn't even involve a, a, a Christian, let's say, and and we pick you know a public servant, hopefully based on their uh, qualifications for that, for that um, position. But I, I think it would be impossible, whether you're a Christian, a Mormon, or an atheist. I, I think it would be impossible to just disregard that question, to just say that their belief does not matter. Of course it matters. Of course it matters. Um, you may, or some of you probably saw this pastor, First Baptist Dallas in the news, 
And, and you may or may not disagree with what he said, and that's fine. But, um, I mean, you know, with, with the way that he was applying it. But, but you cannot be neutral on that. You, 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 everybody has, has a preference. And uh, like I say, even if you're an atheist, you would, you would probably, all else being equal, you would probably vote for an atheist above a Christian. <laughs> you know, if both were qualified. So it's just interesting that people try so hard to force this idea down us that um, you could somehow be totally neutral. You know, it shouldn't matter with presidents. It shouldn't matter with Supreme Court judges. Yes, it should. Yes, because it just does. It just does. Um, there's a reason I'm mentioning that, and we'll hopefully get to bring it out here. Um, Chapter 16, verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 12. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today. Uh, I'm sorry, in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith! Why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves or the five thousand, how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And by the way, that word doctrine is just teaching. So they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were prominent men in uh, first century um, Judaism, in in, uh, first century Israel. They were leaders. Um, the council, you know, the Jewish uh, council was, uh, the Sanhedrin was the, the sort of the equivalent, what we would call, you know, the, the, our Supreme Court. Of course, they were small nation, small people, uh, one ethnic group, essentially. And uh, they were also under Roman domination. So, so it's not like they had actually had sovereign rule of the land, but at least in terms of Jewish matters, the Sanhedrin was the ruling body. And the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men, 70 elders, um, mixture of Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. And in fact, most of the scribes were Pharisees. That's in itself somewhat interesting because in many ways, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at odds with each other. They had differing beliefs. The Pharisees uh, would probably 
uh, if I can just kind of like draw an analogy, and I've done this before a little bit, and hopefully you understand where I'm coming from here, but if, if I could just kind of bring it uh, in an analogous way with our American church today, or the church today, the Pharisees would be more like what we consider today to be the conservatives, conservative theologians. I know it's kind of difficult to think of them in that light because you say, well, it, in Christianity today, in American Christianity today, aren't the conservative theologians the good guys? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, primarily speaking. Uh, at, least, at least what we mean usually when we say conservative uh, Conservative Christians, conservative theologians, usually what we mean by that is that we believe the Bible. You know, we, we believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. So we believe that this is the, the highest authority um, in terms of uh, faith and practice. Uh, we, we believe the Bible. We believe that it's inerrant not only when it speaks in regard to faith and practice, but in any area to which it speaks. So, what I mean by that, for example, it, it is without error in, in all of its uh, treatment of history. And that has just been proven to be true time and time again. Now, there are still people today who argue against that, but um, archaeology over the centuries has, has just confirmed that. Not that it needs its confirmation. But but it but it does you know there are repeatedly uh, archaeological finds made that confirm the truth of the or the historicity of Scripture. It is inerrant. So the the Pharisees would have been more along those lines. They they believed what they had as the Bible, which what we call the Old Testament from Genesis to to Malachi. They that's what they had, and they believed that to be the Scripture, the Word of God. Now, as you know, you know from going through Matthew and from reading uh, the Gospels that they also added a lot of other stuff. We just, we just finished talking about some of that in chapter 15. They had this whole um, body of, of, of uh, traditions, commandments, however you want to say it, principles. Um, the tradition of the elders It was an oral um, law, so to speak, that they added to. The scripture, and it was later codified. It's known now as the Mishnah. And there you have, you know, you have various opinions from different rabbis about how to practically live out the law. And, and some of it's just totally uh, extra biblical in the sense that it, things that are really not found in the law at all. So, for example, in Matthew 15, you have the accusation against the disciples for washing their hands. Well, that that wasn't required. By Mosaic law is something they have added to. It's part of their tradition. So we know that they added a lot, a lot of stuff along with the scripture, but they did consider the scripture from Genesis to Malachi to be the word of God. So the writings of the prophets, for example, they considered to be inspired. But not so with the Sadducees. The Sadducees only accepted the Torah, the, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This, according to the Sadducees, that's the Scripture. That is the Word of God. And then all of the rest of it, according to them, um, were just uninspired writings. And so there's a, obviously, you know, there's, there, that's a big difference. And you, you can't, with the Sadducees, you can't go to the book of Isaiah or the book of Jeremiah or the Psalms or something like that for, for something authoritative. They would say, well, you know, that's not inspired. You would, you would have to take them to the books of Moses if you're going to back something up with the Word of God in their mind. That's, that's a big difference. So there's, you can imagine the kind of uh, tension that just that one thing would cause between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, not unlike today when uh, we have conservative and liberal theologians and the conservatives, as I mentioned, say, you know, we believe all of this, Genesis to Revelation, is the Word of God, and they want to, you know, pick things that they like and, 
discard things that they don't like, that causes <laughs> a schism. Um, and historically, that's been proven again and again and again and again. So the Pharisees and Sadducees are not exactly uh, bosom buddies. They're not exactly best friends. They're not exactly on good terms most of the time. And yet, we find them more than once united in their efforts against Jesus. They, they can agree on that. They can agree when it comes to opposing Jesus. Oh, one other thing I was going to point out in regard to their disagreements is that the Pharisees that were told from the book of Acts, I believe it's uh, uh, chapter 26, that, the Sadducees rather, the Sadducees did not believe in, in the, uh, uh, well, it's in the Gospels and the book of Acts, but the, they did not believe in the resurrection. So for them, there was no spirits, and no resurrection. And so they, you know, they approached Jesus at one point and laid out this whole scenario. If a man has a wife and they don't have children and the man dies, you know, the law says his brother has to take his wife and raise up children in, in the first guy's name. And so they said, okay, so here's the scenario. That happens and brother takes her as wife. But then he dies before they have children. So another brother takes her and then another brother and another. She goes through seven Brothers and never have children, and the Sadducees, thinking to entrap Jesus, said, "Now, when when they in the resurrection, whose wife will she be?" Now, see, they didn't believe there was a resurrection, so they they were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to give him an impossible scenario. Okay, you believe there's a resurrection? Well, let's apply this this one law of Moses. Now, in the resurrection, whose life will she be? And Jesus said. There's no marrying <laughs> in the resurrection. You're like the angels. There's no marriage. It's a foolish question. And shot down their whole attempt there at discrediting him. Well, there's, there is another reason um, for dissension, di- division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sadducees don't accept the resurrection. Pharisees do. Sadducees don't even believe in spirits, you know, they're in the spiritual realm. Pharisees do. Paul used that, by the way, to his advantage in Acts 26 when, when he was, when again, they were unified once again uh, in arresting Paul this time, not Jesus. But they were unified in arresting Paul and, and wanted to kill him. And Paul asked for permission to speak to them. And the first thing that he did, he recognized that some of them were Pharisees and some of them were Sadducees. And Paul was a Pharisee, so the first thing he did was say, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, and I am, I am arrested, you know, condemned for the hope of the resurrection. <laughs> and so immediately there was a, a division among them, and the Pharisee says, Well, you know, this may not be a bad guy after all, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and Paul kind of distracted them, at least momentarily, by using this rift between them. Well, here they come to Jesus, united again at this point, in opposition against Him, and ask for a sign. Matthew says they came testing Him. That is, Matthew is telling us their motive here. This is is not a a, a genuine effort to uh, come to an understanding, you know, in, in a sincere Type way, are you the Christ? Can you can you show us? No, they're they're convinced that he's not the Christ, or that if he is the Christ, they don't like him, and so they're going to deny that he's the Christ. <laughs> so they come testing him and ask that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, remember, this happened once before, back in Matthew 12, and Jesus told them plainly. Uh, you're not going to get any sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jonah himself uh, was a sign. He didn't do any signs. He was a sign. And Jesus says, that's the only sign you're going to get, the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
Just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in a fish, the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Other than that, you're not getting any sign. And notice how they phrase it too. Uh, they're not they're not really talking about any sign. In fact, they just saw. We we read this morning. Some of this they have witnessed. Uh, verse uh, twenty. Or verse thirty, rather, in, in chapter fifteen, verse thirty. Great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. They laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified God. Now, this is what's the kind of thing that's been going on. The lame walking, the blind seeing, and so forth. There's been plenty of signs. And they come to him and say, show us a sign from heaven. They're not talking about any sign. They've got something particular in mind here. I think that's why the, the phrase from heaven, a sign from heaven, as you know, something out of the heavens, something like when um, Hezekiah asked that the dial be turned back 10 degrees and God granted it. Something like when God far Joshua, for Joshua's sake in battle, made the sun stand still. Something in the heavens. Something from heaven. Show us a sign from heaven. And that's why Jesus responds the way He does. First, number one, I mean, He knows that they're testing Him. There's no, there's no sincerity in what they're asking. They, they don't really care about the validity of his claims. They, they just want him dead. They just want him out of the way. What they're trying to do, once again, is trap him in some way. And Jesus responds in verse 2, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. There's a sign from heaven that he's saying you're able to read. <laughs> When it, is, uh, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, the heavens, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He left them and departed. He's not a, he's not a wish granter, and he doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. But notice he points out their hypocrisy. You can read the weather... You, you see signs in the heavens that tell you it's going to be a certain time of evening or morning. You can tell when, when there's a, a storm on the horizon or when it's going to be nice, fair weather. You can do that, but you cannot make a simple deduction from, from everything that you see happening here, everything we just read about in verse 30. Or verse 31, the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing. Or you hear the teaching of Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus, His teaching coming from His mouth. You hear His righteousness audibly and you see it demonstrated. You can discern... The weather, but you can't discern the times. I mean, it seems like it would be, I know it is for me, and you're not, and it's hard to predict the weather. <laughs> seems like it would be harder to read the sky in terms of weather than it would be to tell what's going on here. Now, this is what they've been looking for, longing for for centuries, the coming of the Messiah. Well, everything is shouting to them that He has come. Messiah has come. 
all the evidence, like we talked about a week or so ago, all the evidence is there. The evidence is in. And it's, it's demanding a verdict. But you, but you can't discern that. You can't discern the signs of the time. Now, why is that? Why is it that they were un, unable to make this simple deduction? Why is it that others would see what Jesus was doing and glorify God? Like we have in verse 31. Or some would, would you know, fall before Him like the Syrophoenician woman did, worshiping Him, fell at His feet, and persist in her request because she knew there's nowhere else to go. She knew He could help and that she's helpless otherwise. Why is it that even a Gentile woman like her can discern the signs of the times and the religious leaders of the day don't seem to get the message. Well, <clears throat> he exposes them. First, in verse 3, calls them hypocrites. Pretenders. That's the word there. That's what it means. Pretenders. Pretenders. And in verse 4, elaborates a little further. A wicked an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking to them. He's talking about them. He's not, he's not vague about it in any way. A wicked, he's saying to them, you're, you're wicked. You're a wicked and adulterous generation. You're, you're driven by your own sinfulness, your own evil lust. Wickedness is, is uh, lawlessness is the term. So that is, you live as if there's no law. That's that's an amazing indictment to the Pharisees, especially, isn't it? I mean, the Sadducees might be a little looser because, after all, they don't accept all of the Scripture. They don't believe in uh, you know the resurrection. So they've got a little more. Moral leeway there, right? They can kind of ease their conscience um, with their false beliefs. But here the Pharisees, especially you would think, with all of their profession of belief in God's Word, the importance of God's law, and they've given their lives to teaching it and exampling it, to call them wicked Lawless, the very ones who are supposedly committed to the law of God, and adulterous. You know what that implies? Idolatry. You're you're an adulterous generation, Not, because I think he's meaning spiritually, spiritual adultery. You're supposed to be married to the true God, the God of Israel. You're supposed to love Him, seek Him, and you're, you're given to a false God. You've given yourself over to a God that you've made up in your mind. That's idolatry. That's spiritual adultery. So he says, no, you're not getting a sign from heaven. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 5, Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reason among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Now, you see what Jesus is doing here in verse 6. He's, everything we just talked about in the first few verses of chapter 16 is what Jesus still has in mind here. I know when you get to verse 5, it almost seems like we've shifted to a, 
a, a different uh, a different narrative. You know, we've gone on to a different subject, but not so. And Jesus still has that in, not only that incident, but all of these recent incidents in his mind. Probably thinking about their false accusations, you know, against the uh, uh, him and his disciples for supposedly breaking the Sabbath, you know, plucking grain on the Sabbath, and then accusing the disciples for uh, uh, not washing their hands before they ate. And then now, here they are, again, coming, asking for a sign from heaven. They're, they're wanting him to, to uh, basically uh, do a miracle on demand just to satisfy them. And Jesus issues a warning here to his disciples in, in the way of a, of, a, of a parable, like he did so many times. Verse 6, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And immediately the, 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 the disciples, who are evidently here a true literalist, um, they say, He doesn't want us taking bread from the Pharisees. Okay. Or the Sadducees. For some reason, <laughs> and they're and they're probably you know trying to interpret that one, <laughs> and they reason among themselves in verse seven. It's because we have taken no bread. We didn't come prepared. We didn't bring bread. And Jesus is warning us: don't take any from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's really mad at them. He really he doesn't even want us taking their. Their bread, if they offered, as if they were going to offer it. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Verse eight: Jesus, being aware of it, said, "That is, he's aware. He's aware of their their misunderstanding. They've missed the whole point of the parable." And Jesus graciously lays it out here: "Oh, you of little faith." That's kind of a shocker, isn't it? I mean, they misunderstood something here. And that, you know, I mean, we understand that like when he, when he calmed the sea and he gets in the boat and says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Because just prior to that, they are beside themselves with fear. And, and there he is. I mean, they, they didn't have any reason to fear. So we understand it there, but it seems out of place here, doesn't it? I mean, he's just giving them a parable. They didn't understand it. And here's how he responds. Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? I mean, some, somebody else is not discerning things just right either. Remember the question we had this morning? Jesus has just recently fed the 5,000 people. And then we come over here to uh, uh, chapter 15 and... Uh, here they have 4,000 people. In both cases, it's talking about men. So actually, it's a lot more people than that. Um, you know, it could be eight, ten, twelve thousand people, something like that, uh, because it's 5,000 men, and here 4,000 men. But at any rate, another great multitude needing food, and the disciples say, "Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude?" And you feel like saying, did they really ask that? <laughs> did, they, did they really say that? After Jesus fed 5,000 plus people and then cast the demon out of a Gentile woman's daughter without even, without even going to visit her and then healed blind and mute and maimed and lame Did they really say that? Where, where are we going to get bread for this multitude? They're not figuring something out either. I mean, they've got a better handle on it than the Pharisees and the Sadducees do. 
But they still don't have the full realization of who they're dealing with here. How is it? Verse 11, how is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood. Now they got it. More of it. They're not all the way there yet, but... This 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 is a pivotal point, though, in in the gospel, and it's, it's probably the very reason the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Matthew, puts well, I'm sure it is puts what we just read right in front of verses 17 and uh, or 14, 15, 16, 17, where we have the famous profession of Peter when Jesus says, "Who do you say that I am?" See, there's, there's something, there's a turning point here. Because they, they haven't, it's true, they, they have recognized that He's the Christ. They have left all and followed Him. But they're still not really fully understanding. And this is a pivotal moment in this chapter. They, they are starting to get it. And it's an encouragement for us because we don't discern things like we should either. And and I and we get rebuked. The Lord rebukes. That that's a rebuke in verse eight. Oh, you of little faith. In other words, why aren't you trusting me? Why do you have so little trust in me? Is what the Lord is saying. You who trust so little, you don't believe. I speak and I work. And you don't believe. You don't believe as you should. Somebody said to me just the other day, I guess I just don't have enough faith. I said none of us have the faith that we should have. Nobody. That's that's not that's an issue, but that's not the issue. That's what I told them. What's really important is who you have faith in. Because none of us have the faith that we should have. Oh, that I could say that I that I have faith in God like I ought to have. That I trust God like I ought to. But I know it's not true. And none of us do like we should. But the main thing, as we see in the latter verses, we'll get to Lord willing next Sunday, who's the object of you? The faith that you have. What, where is, your, what is it that you're Believing on. Who is it that you're believing in and on? Is it Christ? Can you say, like, like the man who came to Christ begging that his child be healed, and Jesus said to him, Don't fear, just believe. And he said, Lord, I, I believe. Help my unbelief. Say, boy, he was a confused individual. He was an honest individual. And he came to the right place for help with his faith. His faith was small, but it was focused on the right person. He didn't say, you know what? I don't have faith. And turn and leave. He said, Lord, help my unbelief. He's talking to Jesus. Jesus, you're right. I don't believe like I should. You're right. I've got fear. Jesus, help me. 
He was trusting in Jesus while he wasn't trusting in Jesus. That's kind of the way it is with the disciples here. They, they believe. They know who Christ is. They've left all to follow Him. And yet, they, just, they just don't really fully get it. They, they are not discerning quite right either. But here's the encouragement I was alluding to earlier. Yes, there's a, a, a rebuke. I think, again, what I would call a soft rebuke. Not, not to be taken lightly, but still soft. And then an explanation. And Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't owe a proof or explanation to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He doesn't owe it to the disciples either. He doesn't owe it to me or you either. But you know what He does? He gives it to them because He's training them. He's teaching them. He's increasing their trust in Him. So he says, how, how is it you don't understand? He explains to, him, to them what he's talking about. How is it you don't understand? I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. So now they get it. He wasn't, he wasn't meaning literal bread. He wasn't worried that the scribes and Pharisees were going to poison us. Well, yes, he was, but not that way. He was worried, concerned that they were going to poison us with bad teaching, bad belief, bad doctrine, bad teaching. Not literal bread that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about false religion. He's talking about religion that will verbally embrace the truth, or at least many aspects of it, while at the same time fighting it and denying it in practice. He's talking about the kind of teaching, the kind of religion that he alluded to in the first part of chapter 15 when he brought to their remembrance the words of the Lord, His words through Isaiah the prophet. This people draws near me with their mouth. Their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they do worship me, teaching as commandments the doctrines of men. He's warning them against an empty religion, a man centered, man glorifying approach to religion. One that speaks constantly about God, but is actually void of God's presence and power. That's the poison that Jesus has in mind. And just like He said in one of the parables we discussed earlier, the leaven in the, in the, uh, in the, in the bread... It, it spreads. It spreads like a, like a cancer. It takes hold. Boy, we, we've seen that, hadn't we? We've seen that play out in churches. We've seen that play out in denominations. One of the more conservative Presbyterian denominations exists today, just like many other groups do. It exists today because what was, and that would be the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, because what was the American Presbyterian Church, the mainline Presbyterian Church, which is the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church, United States of America, became so liberal. Now, that happened many years ago, but just a few days ago, 
they started openly discussing, openly ordaining homosexuals in the Presbyterian Church USA. You know why? Bad doctrine. Bad teaching. Rejection of the truth. Letting the zeitgeist, that is the spirit of the age, be our authority in matters of faith and practice, if you can imagine that. It's like we so often accuse the politicians of, right? You stick your finger in the, in the air and see which way the wind's blowing. Oh, yep. Now we're accepting homosexuality as a legitimate lifestyle. Well, okay, then the church needs to line up with culture. Well, the culture says marriage, traditional marriage, is basically meaningless today. Well, the church needs to line up with that, right? I mean, that's, that's just a few extreme examples. There, there are so many more you could mention that are much, much, much more subtle. But a few extreme examples of where bad teaching goes. And when it first... When it first gets its foot in the door, it's, it's so subtle that, I mean, nobody, nobody would imagine that it's going to go there. I don't, I don't remember what year the PCA broke off from the PCUSA. It was a long time ago. You know, probably 50, 60 years or something. I don't know. Long time ago. Been a while back. Maybe more than that. Uh, I don't remember what year it was, but, uh, I can almost, I would almost be willing to bet that even the people left, the liberals that were in the PCUSA, probably, probably didn't imagine they were headed where they've arrived at today. And, and, you know, so many groups you can say that same thing happened in the Southern Baptist Convention, but by God's grace, um, it happened to a large degree, and, uh, and by God's grace, uh, been turned around. Well, for you and I, there are more personal, practical applications. I mean, we have to, we have to be governed by the Word of God. I mean, we, we could, in fact, we could be in a good denomination and still go bad, couldn't we? Uh, personally. We could be in a good church and still go bad personally. So it's, at some point, it comes down to a personal uh, relationship with the Lord and living in obedience to Him, just like the disciples here, and, and Jesus warning us, beware. That is you, you and me. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, whose, whose teaching is, is it's, it looks good on the outside. It's, you know, they're, they're white, Jesus said they're whitewashed tombs. They've got a good appearance on the outside. They're subtle in some ways. Jesus said it's, it's like when you know, people walk across graves and they don't even know dead men's bones are down there. And the people like it. Pharisees were highly esteemed. And the Sadducees. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. So Jesus says, beware. Beware. Beware of false religion. Beware of doctrine, teaching that is just totally outward focused. Has plenty for you to do and not do, and myriads of ways to 
make a show, but no heart for Jesus. After all, what were they? The Pharisees and the Sadducees who differed on so many things and had such strong, such a strong schism between them. What were they able to unite on? Opposition to Christ. Opposition to truth. That's what Jesus is saying, beware of. Beware of that kind of teaching. Anything that turns you against Christ destroy you in the end. Would you stand? Well, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll deal with the next few verses and you'll see that uh, while the outlook was not good for the Pharisees and Sadducees, <laughs> um, boy, like I said, it's encouraging, uplifting when you, when you look at what's going on with the disciples here and, and them, uh, them beginning to understand with whom they are dealing by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we do love You and thank You for Your truth made known to us, revealed, given to us in the Scripture, opened up to us by Your Spirit. And Lord, we pray and look to You. Guard us against false doctrine, false teaching, teaching that would lead us into spiritual adultery, that would pull us away from the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for Your glory alone. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.